0: Hello and welcome to the First Baptist Church of LaGrange. What an honor it is to have you listening to our church broadcast today. We hope that as you listen along, following in your Bible, that you experience the grace and presence of Christ just as strongly as we do every Sunday in our worship service. May God truly bless you as you listen. Good morning. The title of our message this morning is Finding Sufficiency. In her in humility, uh, you can go ahead and uh, grab your Bible. Uh, be making your way to First Peter chapter five. Let me start this way. I'm sure many of you can identify with this, um, but you know I, I always like to help people, I like to serve people. I love to be there for people. It's just something I love. I've always loved it. Love to help people, but it's hard for me to receive help or even ask for help, okay? We would call someone like me kind of uh, self-sufficient, maybe. Uh, Naturally, of course, yes, as as a part of life, growing up and maturing, uh, you need to become somewhat independent, responsible, self-sufficient. Those things are true. uh, But really, uh, this morning, we wanna look at God's word, and we wanna say what the Bible has to say about self-sufficiency and humility, so by way of illustration, uh, I'd like to uh, just uh, tell you this story. Uh, one, one night, uh, I think I was about 18 years old or so at the time, um, I was out driving late at night. It might have been uh, midnight or one o'clock in the morning, something like that, you know, what 18-year-olds do, right? Um, so I was out driving. This wasn't a normal drive, though. Um, at the time, I was still living in Ohio, and there was snow on the ground, Okay, so now for me, personally, winter is terrible. I hate winter. I hate everything about winter, summer all the way, uh, but winter is terrible, and I grew up in Ohio, northeast Ohio, so winters were long. They were brutal. They were cold. There was a lot of snow, um, but for me, the only good thing about snow was getting to drive in it. That's the only thing I loved about snow, really at the end of the day. I mean, some people really aren't good at driving in the snow. Some people learn to deal with it. Some people are terrified of it. Other people thrive in it. And I love driving in the snow. And so here I was late one night, driving home in the snow. And of course, I'm snow drifting in my 4Runner as an 18-year-old, just having a blast, making my way home. Uh, So eventually, I come to the top of my street, um, coming home, uh, come around the corner, And unfortunately, the next thing you know, I'm in the middle of someone's front yard. Okay. Not so good. So there's, you know, a couple things you can do when you're stuck in the snow, and I'm trying to do all of it, backing out, you know, moving stuff around, digging. I'm trying to get out, right? But I'm worried at this point. You know, I grew up in the suburbs, so houses are really close together. Here I am, you know, in the middle of someone's front yard. We're not talking about, like, in the country where I'm just in the field and no one sees me, right? Uh, Midnight headlights are still on. I didn't even think to turn my headlights off. My headlights are shining in someone's, you know, house. Uh, So I'm starting to get worried. I'm panicking. You know, I'm not getting out. I'm stuck. And so I really get to this point where I I know what I have to do, but I don't want to do it. Um, And that's make a phone call to my father as an 18-year-old at one o'clock in the morning. So of course, I I call my dad, uh, pick up my phone, call him up. He answers it, Jacob? I'm like, hey, um, I'm at the top of the street and I'm stuck. I'm in someone's front yard. Can you come get your truck and pull me out, right? So point of the story is, I won't bore you with all the details, but everything was fine. There was no damage. I got out. We're all good. But the point of the story is, all I really had to do was humble myself, right? Make a phone call, Uh, call upon my dad. And of course, he was more than willing, ready able to, to come help me. Um, but all I had to do was kind of stop, right? I was trying to fix the whole thing. I was trying to get out. I was under pressure. I was worrying, I, you know, this is kind of a bad situation. All I had to do was stop and make a phone call. Stop and cry out for help. And really, I thought to myself, you know, Jacob, stop it. Your daddy has a big truck and he'll just come down the street and yank you out take you out. Really, it's simple. And so, it's kind of what we're talking about uh, this morning, um, finding sufficiency in humility, finding sufficiency outside of yourself, which involves humility. So, uh, please stand for the reading of God's Word. We will be in First Peter chapter 5, uh, verses 5 through 7 will be where we spend most of our time hear the word of the Lord. You younger men, likewise, be subject to your elders, and all of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. For God is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourself under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you at the proper time, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. You may be seated. May the Lord bless the reading and the proclamation of his word. So since we're jumping kind of in the middle of something, we don't really know what's going on, I really want to give some brief context, uh, an introduction to uh, a brief uh, introduction to the book of 1 Peter and specifically set us up in chapter 5. So let's look back up to verses 1 through 5. I'll read them very quickly. Uh, Therefore, I exhort the elders among you as your fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ and a partaker also in the glory that is to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but voluntarily according to the will of God and not for sort of gain, but with eagerness, nor yet as lording it over those who are allotted to your charge, but proving to be examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive an unfading crown of glory. So here we are in First Peter. Uh, Peter is writing to mainly Gentile Christians, those of whom he's never met. Uh, and unlike the Apostle Paul, Peter did not start these churches or plant these per, uh, churches, and thereby he really has no personal or circumstantial um, association with them or connection with these Christians. Uh, nevertheless, Peter wants to encourage them really just as they live the Christian life. Specifically, of course, Peter is urgently uh, writing to these Christians because they're facing persecution. It's a main theme of the book. Uh, So of course, he wants to write to them and encourage them because they're under persecution. Okay, they're, they're under sufferings. Um, but at a very general level, there is really nothing extremely unique uh, in the content of 1 Peter, but rather what we find is just the most fundamental and foundational things of what it means to be a Christian and what it looks like to live out the Christian life in this world. So then we come to chapter 5, where we're at this morning. Um, this is the final chapter in Peter's letter, and he's, he starts his final remarks uh, To the elders. So this is is important. He begins exhorting, and he begins that exhortation with the leaders. He begins with the elders. Okay? Now I want to note quickly here that elder does not mean uh, an older person or a senior adult, rather, the office of elder or pastor in the church. Uh, The Greek words here being used, uh, one of them is presbyteros, uh, where we get our English word presbyter. Okay, meaning older or even giving the idea of wisdom. Uh, we also see the Greek word poimaeno, meaning shepherd. This is where we get our word pastor from. Um, and we also see the Greek word episcopaeo. This may sound familiar to that of episcopal or episcopalian. This is the idea of oversight, overseer, one who has oversight over the, the congregation, um, who has leadership in the congregation. So we believe uh, that, uh, and understand all of these three things uh, define the one office of elder, or what we're more familiar with as pastor. Okay, So Peter begins, he first starts with the pastors in his final exhortations. So what is that exhortation? What is he exhorting them to do? Well, he is exhorting them to be faithful shepherds uh, and overseers of God's people to be servants, to be examples of the Christian life. Ultimately, they should be marked with humility as servants or under-shepherds of the chief shepherd, Jesus Christ. So now that we have that context situated, we're gonna start in the text here, digging in, and, and, and we're gonna jump into verses five through seven. So our first point that we're gonna see this morning is that in our humility, we find the gift of grace. Let me read verse five one more time. You younger men, likewise, be subject to your elders and all of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. So Peter now moves on in the text and he addresses what I'm reading from the NASB. What the NASB reads is younger men. Uh, However, the NIV, the ESV, the CSB, to name a few, uh, those translations... Uh, get closer to the idea. They state, "You who are younger." Okay, so the Greek word here is really younger or youthful. Although my version reads younger men, it's really just saying you who are younger. Okay, uh, so uh, it's really kind of unclear what Peter is getting at here. Uh, it's a little ambiguous. Uh, so we have a couple of options. Peter is either literally talking about the younger generation of the congregation probably those who are about of the age 30 and younger. Or Peter may be speaking about the younger lay leaders or younger elders. Or Peter may be talking categorically about those who are elders and the rest of everybody who are not elders. I am going to argue that last position. One early church father and bishop said this, and I quote: "By younger men, Peter means everyone who occupies a subordinate role in the church. But note that those who are superiors must also act humbly, for humility is what should be common to both." End quote. So then, the congregation is to be sub, is to subject themselves to the elders. Uh, And this is really where we begin to pick up on Peter's main exhortation in this whole text, Uh, the main imperative, and it's that of humility. Thus, the congregation is to humbly and willingly subject themselves to the leadership. But remember, as we noted earlier in the context, Peter first started off by talking to the elders or the pastors that they should be rooted in humility. They are supposed to have humble leadership. Then he moves to the congregation and and they do likewise. So Peter makes sure he's being very clear in all of this. He moves on and and we read, and all of you clothe yourselves with humility. And all of you, now he's talking about everybody. Pastors to pastors, pastors to church members, church members to church members, church members to pastors, everybody. And all of you are to do this one thing and that is to clothe yourself in humility. Humility. To clothe here is really getting at the idea of to gird uh, oneself. This is strong language that Peter's using in the Greek. Um, he's really making a, a reference figuratively or giving us the word picture of an apron that a bond servant would put on. That's where the word is, is coming from. And Peter's really driving home the point that we are to be servants to one another. We are to subject ourselves to one another. Consider everyone else more important than me. And yes, while we're still maintaining those distinctions within leadership and not leadership, really at the end of the day, Peter's driving home the point and the imperative that fundamentally I must humble myself and subject myself to serve others. So Peter says, gird yourselves with humility because each of you are going to be servants to one another. Now, Peter moves on uh, in the text to a direct citation of Proverbs chapter 3, which we read this morning. Uh, Peter quotes the Old Testament. He says, For God is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. So now Peter gives us the principle. Why are we supposed to do all this? Why clothe yourselves in humility? Why, why gird yourselves? Why humbly submit? Why subject yourselves to your elders? Why pastors are you to be humble leaders? Why do all of this? The principle is here, and Peter uses scripture, uh, scripture to guide us in what we do. We do this because God is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. So why does God oppose the proud? Well, kind of because he has to, right? So I don't, I don't know if you've ever met a proud person, um, and I don't mean to stereotype, uh, but you know, typically self-centered, self-reliant, self-sufficient. I can do it all on myself, uh, by myself, for myself. I can, do, I can take it all on, and I can take care of all of it. And of course, usually, you know, they do it best, uh, and no one can do it better, sort of a thing. It's easier if I just do it. And, and don't be mistaken, I think we all kind of come to these, these points in our lives, um, but that's, that's the problem with a proud person. You cannot help them because they're proud. Uh, they won't let you help them. Uh, they don't want help. Uh, that's why they're proud. Therefore, God can't really do anything with a proud person because they won't let God do anything really with them or for them. Their pride gets in the way. So all God can do with proud people is oppose them. But to those who are humble, meek, lowly, those who defer themselves to others, well, God gives those people grace. We have a few verses from scripture here that uh, kind of tell us about this. Deuteronomy chapter eight, verse 14 uh, says this, then Your heart will become proud and you will forget the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt and out of the house of slavery. So then we see that pride comes, and in our pride, we forget all that has happened, maybe all that God has done, and then what happens? You forget the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, right? So, hey, you know that's okay. Forget about that. I've got it from here. Sort of a mentality. I can take care of it. This is pride. Uh, Proverbs three thirty four. We read this uh, this morning. Though he scoffs at the scoffers, yet he gives grace to the afflicted. Proverbs fifteen twenty five. The Lord will tear down the house of the proud, but he will establish the boundary, boundary of the widow. And uh, chapter 16, verse five, everyone who is proud in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Assuredly, he will not be unpunished. So then here's our first point, that in our humility, we find the grace of God. God gives grace to the humble. We find help in our humility. Grace is a gift. And grace is something that we don't deserve or work for, but it is something that we must accept. That's crucial in the comparison of being proud and being humble. Grace must be something we can accept. So then what we must understand that uh, God doesn't give grace to the proud. If you are a prideful and arrogant person, it's hard to give you anything because you don't ask for things. You don't look uh, to be dependent or needy or at least show your need. You aren't looking to accept or even ask for help. But when you clothe yourself in humility, it's easier to accept help and grace. In our humility, we find the gift of grace. Further in context, uh, we also see that we find sufficiency from servants around us. We find sufficiency with servants around us. The exhortation that Peter is giving is to clothe yourselves in humility toward one another. So then we really begin to see this idea, this thing that God gives grace to us through those around us. We find sufficiency outside of ourselves. We find sufficiency in servants Around us, let's read first Peter uh, chapter four, verses eight, nine and 10. Peter, going up uh, in the previous chapter, says this: "Above all, keep fervent in your love for one another, because love covers a multitude of sins. Be hospitable to one another without complaint. As each one has received a special gift, employ it or use it in serving one another, and here's the key, as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. So then now, uh, not only do we impart God's grace toward one another in our humility to each other, but we are fueled by God's grace. We are being good stewards of the grace that has been given to us when we serve each other. So what does this tell us? We need the body of Christ. This is important. We need each other. We are not created to be self-reliant or self-sufficient. We are created for servant sufficiency. To live by the sufficiency of grace, not doing this whole thing on our own. We don't have to have it all together or work it all out on our own power and strength without anyone's help. Rather, we must live in grace and walk in grace. Receiving and giving. Receiving and in giving uh, grace to those around us. So that's our first point. In our humility, we find the gift of grace. Our second point is that in our humility, we find the reward of exaltation verse six, read with me, therefore humble uh, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you at the proper time. So moving forward, Peter moves from horizontal relationships with each other uh, to the vertical relationship, continuing in his idea of humility. We are encouraged to humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God. So here now, Peter tells us what humility is. Humility toward God is placing yourself under the love and sovereignty of the Almighty. That's what humility towards God is, placing yourself under Him, having the attitude of being lowly or bringing yourself low. The mighty hand of God is strong biblical imagery. We find uh, this, this word phrase, the hand of God, it's rooted deeply in the Old Testament uh, where we see God's work with delivering Israel even out of Egypt. We see the Old Testament speaking a lot about God's hand. Uh, we see it further in the New Testament when God is at work in and through Christ, him, his work, his exaltation, and then in his church. In the New Testament. Uh, Peter then uses this conjunction, that. Or we often see it as so that. Okay, so humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. Humility toward God is humbling yourself under him, but there's a purpose. That's what the that is there for. Uh, there is a result, in other words, of humbling yourself to God. The result to willfully placing yourself under the mighty hand of God is that God will exalt you. We see this throughout the scriptures. uh, And to those who exalt themselves will be what? Humbled. If you exalt yourself, you will be humbled. Typically this is an exaltation in this life. You in this life are exalting yourself, God will have to humble you. But when you humble yourself in this life, God exalts you. Uh, In Matthew 23, verse 12, uh, Jesus speaking here, Jesus says this explicitly, whoever exalts himself shall be humbled and whoever humbles himself shall be exalted. James as well, James goes on to pick this up. He says in uh, chapter four, verse 10, humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord and he will exalt you. So to be exalted, what is that? It's, it's to be raised, to be honored, to be lifted up. And it's fitting that this exaltation is for those who are in Christ. So we humble ourselves in this life so that one day we will be exalted with and in Christ. Our exaltation is not based on our merit. It's not based on our sufficiency. It's the opposite. It's based in our humility, our bringing ourselves low. Not in our work, not in our sufficiency. Our exaltation is found in our humility. The exaltation of the humble, of course then, is at the proper time. Peter here is talking about a future time, an opportune time, in due time. Uh, In other words, we do not find, Christians, we do not find exaltation in this life. Uh, We find it rather in the next life in glory with Christ. So then we see our second point in our humility. We find sufficiency in a future hope and promise of what God will do. There is sufficiency in what God will do in the future. That future hope gives us sufficiency outside of ourselves not by my own sufficiency, not by what I'm doing. Rather, it is the humility of getting under what God has done, can do, and is going to do. There is a future reward of exaltation. We do not live this lowly life of humility as servants for no reason. In other words, God does not humiliate us or wish that we live this holy life for no reason. There is a future exaltation for those who humbly follow the Lord, one that is eternal and immutable. When you try to exalt yourself in this world, the end is eternal humiliation. God, this may sound kind of funny, but God wants to exalt you. You can exalt yourself, and we kind of know that because God is opposed to the proud, right? But God wants to exalt you, and he can exalt you, but first, in this life, we must live as humble Servants. As we look to this future reward, of course, we must look to Christ Himself. In John's Gospel, chapter 3, verse 14, it reads As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, be exalted. In John's Gospel, 8, Verse 24 or 28 says, so Jesus said, when you lift up the son of man, then you will know that I am he and I do nothing on my own initiative, but I speak these things as the father has taught me. And then we kind of come full story. We read Acts chapter two, verse 33, therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the father, the promise of the Holy spirit, he has poured forth this which you both see and hear. The son of God who took on our humanity, becoming fully God and fully man, yet without sin. This is true humility. True humility and exaltation is really found in Christ himself. So the God man, Christ Jesus, who is the ultimate service, he lived a life of humility and grace and then Exalted to sit at the Father's right hand. To be clear, though, I do want to add uh, when we speak of our exaltation, this is not some form of us becoming gods or little gods. That's not what's happening in the text. Biblically, what we see, though, um, is that rather in Christ, we receive all of his benefits, his love, his glory and the glory of eternal life being reconciled to God. So our exaltation is never on our own or for us, or that in some way we become a God somehow. That is not what happens. Our exaltation is found in Christ. So we've walked through the first two verses, uh, and we see that we must clothe ourselves in humility toward one another. We must humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God. And that in our humility we find the gift of grace and look to the reward of exaltation and so at this point in our service uh, we want to do the book we want to do this humility thing Uh, we want to let the word of christ dwell richly within us Uh, just this week god was uh, beginning to work in my life uh, teach me about all of this in a fresh way Really recently, uh, one of my closest friends reached out to me. Um, Sorry. Um, One of my closest friends reached out to me, um, kind of starting to share his heart. um, And he exposed some things maybe that I've done to hurt him uh, in the past. Even some things that I didn't even necessarily recognize or think that might have been a big deal uh, to me. Um, Of course... (laughs) to be honest, immediately, really, I wanted to respond pridefully. I think oftentimes we find ourselves in a situation like that, and our gut reaction is, you know, I want to respond, uh, respond pridefully. I, I want to be defensive, clear my name, right, make justifications for what I've done, rationalize uh, all I've done, all the things that I might have done, might not have done, um, and I wrestled with that. I was literally working on this message in that moment when he, uh, when he communicated to me. And I looked down literally and read in the scriptures, God is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And it stopped me that if I was going to give grace, I was going to first need grace myself. I had to clothe myself in humility toward my brother toward a very close friend. Maybe you've had a similar situation happen to you this week. Maybe it's an entirely different circumstance. Maybe it's not a situation, maybe it's a season of life. But I wanna take some time uh, right now uh, in this moment where we can kind of slow down, we can think about things, we can meditate on scripture uh, and reflect. So let's start with scripture as we do this. So Paul, in the context really of love, selflessness, uh, self—sorry, selflessness, uh, humility, servanthood—really, he charges us to be like Christ. And we read in Philippians chapter two, verses five through nine: Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself, taking on the form of a bond servant, being made in the likeness of men. Being found in the appearance of a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name. So. We wanna take a few moments here. Reflecting on that scripture, we wanna meditate on Christ. Think about Christ, meditate on him. So take uh, just a couple of minutes and just reflect on Christ. He's a humble servant. Jesus himself said he came not to be served but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus is the ultimate humble servant. Stay there for a minute, just reflect on that. He humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. The ultimate humble servant who was then exalted to the right hand of God. Now we want to kind of look inwardly as you're meditating on Christ, meditating on the scriptures. Now kind of think inwardly. Is there any pride in my life? Maybe it's a situation. Maybe a relationship with somebody you have. Maybe it's in a way of thinking that you have. Maybe it's behavior of something you're doing against someone or not against someone, just selfishly. Is there any pride in my life? Think about that. What might it be? What does it cause you to do? How does it manifest itself? We might have pride in our lives but the good news is that God gives grace to the humble. So recognizing your pride And thinking about that, in that situation, you're humbling yourself. and God will give you grace. Is there any pride in my life? Now we'd want to turn back to Jesus Christ. Not only is he the ultimate, humble, suffering servant who took care of all of it and then he was exalted, but he's also our high priest. Jesus Christ is our high priest. So in these moments, as we reflect on scripture and then we look at our life, our relationship with Christ, our relationship with others, we then can turn to our high priest. He's praying for us. The scriptures are clear. He wants to give us grace. So then Turn to Christ, your high priest. Take a few moments. What is he saying to you in this situation? What is he saying to you about your pride? Listen to Christ. He cares about your life, your struggles, your anxiety, your areas of pride, and he wants to help you. He wants to give you grace. What is your high priest saying? Listen to him. Moving on in our text this morning, we come to our final point. In our humility, we now find the provision of care. Let me read verse 7. One of maybe the more exciting verses in this passage here. Verse 7 reads, "'Casting all your anxiety on Him because He cares.'" So back in verse six, we learned what humility is, right? Humility towards God is placing yourself under him, right? Placing yourself under the Almighty. Well, now in verse seven, Peter gives us the practical way of doing that. So how do you humble yourself or what does it look like to humble yourself to God? And it looks like this, casting all your cares on him. Again, now we see for maybe a third time, Peter's using strong language again here. He doesn't just say, hey, hand it over to God or, or, or tell God about it merely or, or just say something to him. No, he says cast. It's in, it's in the verb there, casting. Um, so it has this idea of throwing really is kind of what the, the Greek is getting at. We throw these things onto God. Casting your anxiety on him. Maybe we can even give a word picture of rolling something heavy off onto someone else. So throwing this onto God or rolling a heavy weight of anxiety or, or worries or burdens onto the Lord. Anxiety, of course, uh, we probably don't have to really define that. Most of us kind of are well acquainted with it. Anxiety is to be understood as Just that, cares, concerns, worries. Um, However, in context, we do have to draw the connection between anxiety and pride. The connection between anxiety and pride. So since the imperative is to humbly cast off or throw off your anxiety onto God, then the opposite would be to be filled with it to hold on to your anxiety and your worry. This then, in context of humility and pride and really the dynamics of what Peter's talking about, it is a prideful thing or maybe even a prideful consequence. Anxiety is a prideful consequence. Um, Holding on to your anxiety and bearing your burdens alone is prideful. Because God wants you to give it to him. So the good news uh, is that this command is not arbitrary or impersonal, right? Oh, hey, just, just throw it onto God. Well, it's good news is it's not that arbitrary or, or that impersonal, right? We're not expect to just magically get rid of our worry or our, our anxiety. Um, the fact is that there's a very personal reason that we do this. So why do you cast all your anxieties onto God? Again, he says it right there in the text, because he cares for you. Cast your cares on God. Why? It's simple. Because he cares for you. God is genuinely and personally concerned. He does not only care about you, but he wants to care for you. So then we see our final point in our humiliation we find the provision of care. The point is that we come to God and he takes care of us. We have a God who cares. We cast our cares, our burdens, our anxieties, our worries, all those things we wrestle with, we cast them onto him. Having confidence that he will receive, we will receive God's provision. And care A very familiar Bible passage that speaks to this is Matthew chapter 6, verses 25 through 33. Jesus speaking here, For this reason, I will say to you, do not be worried about your life as to what you will eat, what you will drink, um, or what you will drink, uh, nor for your body as to what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air that they do not sow, they do not reap, nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not worth more than they? And who of you, by being worried, can add a single hour to his life? And why are you worried about clothing? Observe how the lilies of the field grow. They do not toil. They do not spin. And yet I say to you that even Solomon in all his glory clothed himself like none of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow will be thrown into the furnace, will he not much more clothe you? You of little faith. Do not worry then saying, what will we eat? What will we drink? What will we wear for clothing? So we see Even Jesus' commands and his teachings and his life is this life of not worrying about the things of this world. Now, I want to quickly note uh, that anxiety is a real thing, okay? Uh, I, myself, uh, and God has no intentions on simplistically rationalizing your anxiety. The reality is that God knows that we have legitimate worry and anxiety, and that's why he lovingly wants to provide and care for those. But we must know that anxiety comes out of a belief that one must take care of oneself. When we convince ourselves that I have to solve all the problems um, in my life, I have to bear all the burdens, that I have to make this whole thing work, that it's really all up to me. Well, at that point, there's only kind of one person I'm trusting in, and that's myself. So, yet again, we see God does not want me or you to be self-sufficient. And to say it in a way that would make a whole lot of sense to our church, we could say it like this, anxiety is birthed out of aloneness. Instead, we must humble ourselves under God's mighty hand. In our humility, we find the provision of care. But something happens when we cast our cares on the Lord. Surely this does not mean that at best, God sympathizes with us or God merely thinks about us when we come to him and and cast our worries on him, right? Or at worst, maybe he's apathetic or indifferent to what's distressing us, Um. Do we lay our worries and anxiety at his feet and then he proceeds to just think about us and then move on? No, rather the Lord proceeds to care for us, comfort us, sustain us. In Psalm 55 verse 22, uh, the psalmist says this, cast your burdens upon the Lord and he will sustain you. He will never allow the righteous to be shaken. So then casting your cares on the Lord is not some therapeutic trick. When we throw our anxieties and worries on the Lord, he actually does something about it. He sustains us. He comforts us. He empowers us. And if we had more time to go into detail, we could really see how the Lord sovereignly cares through us, physically and actually by people, through those around us, through the body of Christ. So, Cast your burdens on him. We are all experiencing an array of issues in life. Marital issues, financial issues, insecurities, parental worries, difficult children, job security, job stress, health problems, persecution maybe even of, of being a Christian. Throw them onto the Lord. Roll these heavy burdens off yourself and onto Jesus and rejoice knowing that God cares for us. Our worship team can make their way up here as we close. We've heard God's word this morning and we see that in our humility, we find the gift of grace. In our humility, we find the reward of exaltation. And in our humility, we find the provision of care. God wants to do all of those things in your life, but the the key part in all of those points is that we have to humbly come before the Lord. We must be uh, humble. We must be clothed in humility. So now we want to take uh, just a few more short moments. The Lord always wants us to respond to him by faith. Maybe you don't even have faith in Jesus this morning, or maybe you do, and maybe it needs to grow. But the Lord wants us to respond in faith. The great news is that God wants to take care of us. Maybe you find yourself here this morning, and you don't quite know about this whole thing. You don't have a relationship with Jesus, and casting all your cares on God might sound great, but you're like, where do I start? And really, it's simple. You start right there calling upon the name of the Lord and casting your cares upon him, confessing that you are insufficient within yourself. Jesus lived the perfect life. He humbled himself. He became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And Jesus died taking all sin and suffering all the wrath of God so that you and I wouldn't have to. He is the only one that could do it. You and I are insufficient we're sinful, and we stand separated from God apart from Christ. But Jesus changes all of that. So maybe that's you this morning. Uh, For those of us who are already Christians, maybe you're here uh, and you know there's pride in your life and it's hindering you and God. It's hurting relationships uh, with those around you. Maybe you've even been hurt by the church before and it's hard for you to humbly serve each other, it's hard for you to kind of come back into the body that way because of hurt. Maybe you're full of anxiety this morning. Maybe God is exposing areas in your life where you are just self-sufficient and self-reliant. So I encourage you to receive the word of God and respond and get grace today. So if you would please stand, take a few moments. And think about these things. You could come to the altar. You can come up front. You can grab somebody. You can pray there in your seat, whatever you need to do. But let's respond to the Lord.